All right, good evening. Well, it's great to have everyone here. On behalf of the College and Careers of Westminster Chapel, I'd like to welcome you to uh, the CNC's very first uh, City Night Lecture. Uh, and we're starting on the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. So our guest today is Dr. David Robinson, who actually is our senior pastor for those who are visiting. Uh, those of you who are already here, you don't need necessarily an introduction to Dr. David. Uh, David, of course, is also an adjunct faculty. He teaches at Tyndale University College and Seminary. Uh, he also uh, teaches at St. Michael's uh, College at University of Toronto. And uh, Dr. David uh, is also, has also published a, recently a book, uh, which I believe is on the commentary on Tychonius's uh, work on Revelation, the book of Revelation. He can talk a bit more about that uh, later on if you're interested about that. But we thought that as the College and Careers, uh, reflecting on the church and its place in the city of Toronto, uh, that the church should be a place for people to come together uh, to discuss various different subjects, all relating, of course, to the centrality of Christ and the Lordship of Christ. And being a church in the downtown core, uh, it is expected that we are a light and a salt on the earth, that we're not exactly a silo or an isolated community. We're here to be influential. We're here to reach out uh, to our community. And as a result, we're trying to build relationships with various uh, student campus ministries so that we can let uh, those who are looking for a church know that there is a church here at the downtown core for them to serve as a home. It's also there, uh, we're also offering Westminster Chapel as a place for uh, inquirers, those who are seeking after true spirituality, to come and to ask questions, to speak with uh, Christians in, in their city and to ask questions, to find answers to their questions, to find sermons with relevance, and to find out what it is that we are truly called to do and called to be. And that's the idea of these City Night Lectures, which will be about once a month, uh, featuring different speakers on different subjects. And in honor of, or I guess in celebration of the Protestant Reformation, which we are celebrating this year, the 500th anniversary, uh, in just two days from now, uh, uh, sorry, three days from now, on October 31st, on Tuesday, we wanted to have a lecture to open up on Reformation heritage. You know, how is it that we are where we are today? How did we get to where we are today as a church? The core doctrines of our belief. And so we can look back and see the rich heritage of the church's theological development just recovering biblical foundations for our time. And that's essentially the underlying philosophy of these CNC lectures. It's to recover biblical foundations for our time. So before I ask Dr. David Robinson to come up here so he can speak on this, on the joy and sweetness to a broken heart, God's justifying and sanctifying love, according to Martin Luther, I'm just going to take a moment of prayer and I ask if you join me. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this privilege and this opportunity to be together, Lord God, here at your church. We thank you, Lord, for those who are with us and those who are visiting for the first time. We thank you, Lord, that we are able to gather freely to worship you, to learn about your word, and to ask questions openly as well, so that we might learn what it is that your word has to tell us. Lord, this evening we pray that you might equip and uh, also provide clarity and understanding and wisdom to every listener today. We also pray that your spirit and your hand be upon 
uh, Pastor David, that he might, Lord, speak with great clarity in explaining uh, the rich history of our faith, and also as he brings to light this reformer uh, who has played a vital role in your kingdom in the past. We pray, Lord, that our hearts may be opened, that our minds may be clear, and Lord, that if we have questions, that we might be bold enough to ask and to discuss what's on our hearts, what's on our minds. We thank you, Lord Jesus, in your name we pray, amen. Pastor David. Well, thanks everybody for coming. I know it's kind of a cold and dreary and wet night, but I'm glad you're here. And I've made a handout. I'm big on handouts, so if you don't have one, Helen, there should be a handout in the back row there for you. I made 40 of them, and I think that proved to be just about the right number, but if more people come, Stephen or Ken, I left the original on the photocopier up there, so you can run up there if you need to. I was thinking about what I would talk about tonight, and one of the courses that I used to teach at Tyndale is called The History of Christianity Part 2, Reformation to the Present Day, and the first half of that course was on the Reformation. So I have in the bag, I guess you could say, six lectures, six three-hour lectures on the Reformation, so I've got about 18 hours worth, I guess, of material on the Reformation. And there's a lot you could talk about, obviously. And if you've been in the church, and especially a Protestant or Evangelical church, for even a little bit of time, you've probably heard something about the Reformation and about Martin Luther or John Calvin. And especially this year, since it's the 500th anniversary, there's all kinds of articles being written and all kinds of new books out. And for those who study church history, the 16th century, and this is when the Reformation happened, is probably the most well-covered period of church history. So there's just tons and tons and tons of work done on the 16th century. And all that to say, we could be here forever, talking about all of the different reformers and what happened. It's a very interesting and very rich period of history. And I thought maybe I would just initially maybe just rehearse something of the biography of Martin Luther and talk about the significance of these 95 theses that he nailed to the wall and what was going on there. But my guess is that those of you who are interested in this have probably already read up on that or seen something about that. And if you've seen the movie that came out, I think it was in 2003 with Joseph Fiennes on Luther, it's a very good movie, actually. And you get the gist of it from that movie. It's very good in its presentation of Tetzel and what was going on there. So I decided not to do that, not to do so much of a historical lecture on the Reformation in the 16th century. Instead, I wanted to give you a taste of the theology and the writing of Martin Luther and really attempt to get to the heart of what made him tick and the way in which he understood the gospel. And I found that whenever you read a blog or a little article on the Reformation, it'll touch on the important points of Luther's theology, but usually it's pretty superficial and I find doesn't get at the heart of, of what really moved him. And he talks about the fact that when he discovered this theology of justification by faith, that it was something like a born-again experience for him. He felt reborn. And he said it was as if he had entered into paradise. And from that moment on, he never read scripture the same way again. So it was a transformative experience. It changed his mind and his heart 
his whole understanding of God, his whole understanding of life. And so I wanted to get at the heart of that. So I'm going to take maybe 45 minutes, and then we'll have Q&A after that, just to walk you through some of the, the key texts and key ideas of Martin Luther on justification by faith. And this is one of the things that people talk a lot about. This is what uh, was emphasized in the 16th century, the fact that we are justified by faith, not by our own good works. And the way that it's typically presented is with a, in very forensic terms. And what I mean by that is in legal terms. That's often how it's understood. So before God, we are guilty. We have sinned against God. We've trespassed. We've broken his law. We're guilty because of that. We stand under God's just condemnation. And that condemnation is eternal separation from God, eternal death. But in the death of Christ, he has taken our sin and our guilt upon himself. And so the way that the language that's often used is our sin, our guilt, our condemnation has been put on him. It's been imputed to him. And we have received, in in place of our sin and our death and our condemnation, Christ's righteousness. Uh, His righteousness has been imputed to us. It's been put on us. His life has been put on us. So that there is a verdict from the judge, from God himself, which is a verdict of of pardon, meaning no, no condemnation. And so it's often presented in those very legal terms. And justification by faith means that in the divine court of law, or heavenly court of law, you've been found to be in the right. You're declared to be right. And in one sense, Luther was perfectly happy with that way of understanding justification by faith. But when he writes about it, he's not so much concerned about this legal understanding of things, the fact that we're guilty before God, and there has now been a pardon of sin officially in the courts of heaven, and we've been declared righteous. That's not the language that he often uses. So I wanted to move away from this sort of legal, strictly legal understanding of justification by faith and look at how Luther viewed it. And for Luther, it had much more to do with union with Christ. And justification by faith means that we are joined to Christ and in our union with Christ. And the metaphor that he uses isn't from the law court, but it's from marriage. Christ is our groom, our husband. And as our husband, we receive everything that belongs to him, and he has taken everything that belongs to us. And in the Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 16, the bridegroom says, I am my beloved's and he is mine. I am yours and he, uh, I am yours and you are mine. And this is how Luther understands justification by faith. That Christ has said to us, you are mine and I am yours. So that's how I wanted to look at it. And given that marital understanding of justification by faith, what comes through there is a a rich and profound understanding of God's love. And so that's why I've entitled this the way I have. That phrase there I put in quotes, the, the, the title, Joy and Sweetness to a Broken Heart, that comes from Luther's commentary on Galatians. And for Luther, God's love to us is a justifying love, but it's also a sanctifying love, which means it transforms us. And there are two parts to my lecture. The first part I wanted to consider, I want to consider his justifying love, which transforms us and puts us, uh, joins us to Christ. And then in the second part of the lecture, consider how we are continually, daily being transformed by God's love. So I haven't got even past the title, but there we are. That's the title.
Don't worry, I'll, I'll, I'll speed things up. But if you look on your handout there, there's a picture of a very young Martin Luther. When I get to sanctification, the second part, that'll be an old Martin Luther, a picture there. But there he is as an Augustinian monk, and you can tell by his uh, habit, his attire, and the shaved head. And the fact that he was an Augustinian monk is significant. It means that he was part of a monastic tradition which looked back to the writing and the theology of St. Augustine of Hippo. And Augustine was somebody who understood in a profound way and recognized in his own day all of the threats, all of the false teaching to God's grace. He understood the gift of God. He understood the love of God. And even, even more than Martin Luther, he, he wrote very beautifully about God's love and God's grace. So Luther was, if you're just thinking of God's providence in this, he was put in a monastic order where already there was a recognition of the grace of God and the love of God. And you, remain, you may remember this if you uh, remember the movie. Uh, Luther's, uh, the, the abbot or his confessor, is always reminding him of God's love. And that's very Augustinian. The other important thing to note about Luther at this time, and I'm, I'm speaking here about the 1512, 13, 14, 15. So the years leading up to 1517. Uh, Luther in the Augustinian order proved to be very bright, uh, smart, uh, an able scholar and theologian. He eventually received a doctor, uh, his doctorate in theology, which meant that he was qualified to be a professor or a teacher of theology. That's what the word doctor means, teacher. And he was sent to the University of Wittenberg. And Wittenberg is a unique place. It was a new university. It was funded by the patronage of um, Frederick the Wise, or Frederick of Saxony. It was in the region of Saxony. And Frederick, in the region of Saxony, in the city of Wittenberg, had always sought to exercise a certain independence from the Roman Catholic Church and from, from Rome. And this doesn't mean they weren't Roman Catholic, but they always sought to be somehow independent. So Luther was, was in the right place, I guess you could say, at the right time. He's an Augustinian, and he, he's in a place where there's a certain freedom to challenge the theological and uh, ecclesiological, so just the way of doing church. Uh, he was in a position where he was free to challenge those things. And in the years 1512, 13, 14, 15, he was lecturing on the Psalms, he was lecturing on Paul's letter to the Romans, he was lecturing on Paul's letter to the Galatians. Now all the while, he's also going through the rigorous daily routine of a monk, so times of prayer, times of work, times of confession. And he was also ordained as a parish priest. So during the week, he may be lecturing and debating points of theology in the university, but in the evenings and on Sundays, he's preaching, he's administrating, uh, administering sacraments, he's hearing people's confessions. So he's somebody that very much has one foot in the church, and he understands the struggles of everyday people, and he's got one foot in the university, and he understands all of the scholastic theological debates that are going on at the time. So he, he's very much at home in both places. And as he's studying and as he's striving to please the Lord, and again, the movie does a good job of Luther striving to uh, please God in what he does, he finds that as he's lecturing on Romans, and I've given you the verse there, Romans 1, 16 and 17. Paul says there that in the gospel, we have the revelation of the righteousness of God. And whenever Luther heard that term, the righteousness of God, 
he heard it as a sentence or a word of condemnation. And later in his life, all of his works that he wrote in Latin were collected and published, and he wrote a preface. He wrote an introduction to those works. And in that preface, he looks back and he reflects on his experience at this time. And he says that he was wrestling day after day with this phrase, the righteousness of God, or the justice of God. And as he meditated on that phrase, he, he, he increasingly fell into a deeper and deeper despair. And that's what I put there. There's, you may as well get two German words coming out of the lecture on Martin Luther. So the two words I selected for you are Enfektungen and Wiedergeburt. Wiedergeburt means to be born again, rebirth. And Enfektungen refers to a, a very deep depression or a, a sense of being assailed by the devil or uh, a, spiritual, a spiritual tribulation. And this is what he was experiencing meditating on the justice and righteousness of God and recognizing that if the, if the gospel reveals God's righteousness and I stand beholding God's righteousness in the gospel, then it reveals my own unrighteousness and unworthiness. And so the more and more he was lecturing on Romans, the more and more he felt unworthy of God's righteousness, not measuring up, not meeting it. And then uh, he was also lecturing on the Psalms. And as he was working through the Psalms, he came to Psalm 22. And I've given you there the, the opening lines of that Psalm, but it begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the church for centuries had been reading and interpreting and teaching the Psalms Christologically, which meant that they saw much in the Psalter that had to do with Christ. It's prophecies of Christ, it teaches about Christ. And going all the way back to Augustine, Augustine said we need to read the Psalms as prayers of Christ. Not just about Christ, but these are the prayers that Christ himself prayed. And Psalm 22 is an obvious example of that, because Christ on the cross prayed this prayer of Psalm 22. And Luther was struck by the fact that Christ cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is how Luther felt. He felt abandoned by God. He felt that God's righteousness meant that he was left out of any, any possibility of communion with God. But then he, he saw in this psalm, no, Christ himself experienced this. Christ himself knew what it meant to feel abandoned by God. And a whole new vision of God then came through in this. Beforehand, Luther always viewed Christ as the one who is seated in judgment over him. And in late medieval art, Christ was often portrayed as suffering on the cross. That comes through. It's partly because of St. Francis and his emphasis on the suffering of Christ. But also, in a lot of the churches, in the stained glass windows, in the sculptures, Christ was depicted as a judge, sitting on the rainbow, with the sword coming out of his mouth. That comes from the book of Revelation. But this is how Luther viewed Christ, the one with the sword coming out of his mouth, ready to strike me down for my wickedness. And then, as he, as he studied Psalm 22, he recognized that the one seated on the rainbow is also the one who cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it totally changed his view of that phrase, the righteousness or justice of God. And he says that reading Romans through the lens of Psalm 22 uh, allowed him to recognize that the righteousness of God is not a standard to which we must attain. It's not the goal. It's a gift. It's given to us. 
And that's, the, that's what he said transformed his whole reading of Scripture. He said, from that moment on, whenever I read about the wisdom of God, or the strength of God, or the life of God, or the truth of God, or the Spirit of God, or the righteousness of God, I saw there, this is God's gift. It's something that God offers. It's something that he, that he gives. And the, way, the means by which we receive the gift is faith. And that's what we see right there in Romans 1. The righteous shall live by faith. So over that period of time, 15, 12, 13, 14, 15, Luther comes to an understanding of what it, what it means to receive God's grace. And the fact that righteousness is a gift, it's grace. Now, part, the, part of the reason, one of the reasons that he was struggling at this time is because a lot of the theologians of his own day were reading and teaching a theology which had become popular in the 1300s and the 1400s. Now, in the history of theology and in philosophy, this is a movement called nominalism. It's sometimes referred to as the via moderna, approach to uh, theology. And I don't want to get into all of that. I've already spent too much time talking about other stuff. Partly I don't want to get into it because I don't really understand it. And in fact, I teach a course on medieval, medieval theology and I end it at Thomas Aquinas. Quite simply because I don't understand the stuff that comes after it, so I just don't teach that. So all that to say, Luther has a lot to say about this movement in theology, which was very popular at his day. And he understands it. He gets it. What's brilliant about Luther is he doesn't get caught up in all the fine points of the theology because he recognizes what's wrong with it, and he deals with that. And there was a phrase that was popular at the time, which went like this. For those who do what is in them, God will surely not deny grace. This was a a popular slogan. And the view was that we do what is within us, and then God meets us, and he elevates what we do, and he infuses his grace into it, and then elevates us and saves us. Nobody in the 16th century ever said that we are saved by our own effort. Nobody said that. Nobody would ever say that. But what they were saying is that God's grace works with those who are doing what is in them. And simply put, what they're saying is, if you do what you're best, if you do your best, God will save you. Now, your best is not going to save you. Nobody said that. But if you're doing your best, God will come alongside you and elevate you. And you can picture somebody sort of plucking out a simple song on a piano. That's your best. But God comes in as the maestro and he fills, all, fills in all the chords and makes it all sound beautiful. So that, that was the, the view of how God's grace worked. God's grace elevates what we do. And just to use a more recent popular phrase, you might describe this theology as, as saying, God helps those who help themselves. And Luther then asked the fundamental question, okay, if we do what is in us, what is in us? What then is in us? And this is the question that he asked at a debate. It's called the Heidelberg Disputation. It happened in 1518. Partly it was because the Augustinian order, of which Luther was a part, were concerned about Luther. By this time he was, he was becoming increasingly popular, he was controversial, and so they wanted to kind of throw him out there in a debate and have him defend his theology. And in, those, in that Heidelberg disputation, what he did was he, he attacked the notion that we are able to do good works. And even those good things that we do, he said, are mortal sins. Even our good works are sinful. 
And the reason he said this is because we have to get to the fundamental question, what is in us? What then is in us? And he cites various passages of scripture which reveal what's in us. And I've given them to you there. So Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. So who are we? We're dead. We're corpses. Jeremiah 2.13, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that, no water, that hold no water. So again, what are we? We're broken cisterns. So can we, can we draw any water from within ourselves that God will then infuse with his grace to save us? No, we're not. Therefore, since we are broken cisterns, since we are dead, another image that he uses is we are bad trees. And bad trees don't produce good fruit. Bad trees produce bad fruit. So the problem isn't so much can we do good works or bad works. The problem is what's in us? What are we? And Luther says we're dead. He says we're empty. He says we're bad trees. So we can't draw on anything from within ourselves and we can't bear good fruit. And this is what Luther argued in this disputation. He wanted to get back to a, a biblical anthropology. Who, who are we really? Is there anything good within us that God's grace is going to elevate and therefore save and redeem? So he said more at that disputation, but that was really the heart of it, to, to put on the table an anthropology which doesn't candy coat anything that isn't overly optimistic. So he lays out there a very bleak picture of who we are as sinful people. Now a year later, he preached a sermon on how to rightly meditate on the passion of Christ. And you can find this online if you just Google it. And it's a very powerful meditation on the cross and on Christ. And he begins by talking about the wrong way in which we meditate on the suffering of Christ. And then he says, what is the right way to meditate on Christ? And he says, if we are rightly meditating on the suffering of Christ, we will find in the cross what he calls an earnest mirror, a mirror. If we're rightly meditating on the cross, we'll see a reflection of ourselves there. And the reflection isn't pretty. Because what we, what we will see of ourselves as we meditate on the cross is how absolutely wretched and rotten we are as sinners. And he says, as you see Christ's suffering there, know that it is the weight of your sin that is pulling him down on the cross so that he can't lift himself up to take a breath. Know that it is your hand because of your sin that drives in each nail into his hands and into his feet. Know, uh, see there the, the sheer weight of the wrath of God on sin, which, which he is pouring out on his son. So he says, as you're meditating on the cross, you should be absolutely terror-stricken. And you should be cut to the heart. And you should allow the wrath of God being poured out on the Son of God to reveal to you just how rotten and awful and wretched a sinner you are. So he says, that's, that's, but that's the first step in rightly meditating on the cross. And then he, but he says, don't stop there. And if you stop there, then you're just, you're just going to be eaten up and your conscience will, will never give you any relief from your despair because of your own sin. He says, don't stop there, but keep looking. Keep studying the cross. Because yes, the, the cross reveals that you are a wretched sinner. But the cross also opens up to you and reveals to you the heart of Jesus. 
And he, he has a wonderful expression there. We see in the cross the friendly heart of Christ. And I'll just read that quote that I've given to you there. So I'm on page two, number four there, part C. Pass through the suffering and see Christ's friendly heart and how full of love it is toward you that impels you to carry with heaviness your conscience and your sin. Then your heart will be sweet toward him and the confidence of faith will be strengthened. Now go further and rise through Christ's heart to God's heart and you will see that Christ would not have shown his love for you if God, to whom Christ with his love for you is obedient, did not want to hold you in eternal love. There you will find the divine, good, fatherly heart. What Luther says is that in the cross and only in the cross do we see not only the heart of Christ open to us, but the heart of the Father. And he's reflecting here on what John says at the beginning of his gospel, John 1, verse 18, where John says, No one has ever seen God, but the only Son who is in the bosom or the heart of the Father has made him known. So in Christ, we see the revelation of the heart of God. And it's on the cross that the heart of God is exposed, and we see it. So Luther says, don't just stop short of having your own heart exposed as you meditate on the cross. Keep looking, because you'll see there the heart of God opened up to you. And there he starts to reflect then on the love of Christ. And the love of Christ is a love which is transformative. It changes us. And here's where he, get, he gets to his, I, I think, uh, how we should understand his doctrine of justification by faith. Faith receives the love of God, and the love of God is a justifying love. But it's not just simply the pronouncement of the judge on us saying, you're pardoned of your sin, or you're justified in your sin. It's much more than that. Luther has a very intimate, I guess you could say almost mystical understanding of justification by faith. When God pours out his justifying love on us, he draws us in to himself. He, he, he pulls us into himself. And for Luther, to be justified by faith means to be joined to Christ. And joined to Christ as our husband. And again and again, he comes back to this biblical metaphor of Christ as, as the groom and the church or the soul as the bride. And he says that love changes us. And I, I want to read something that he actually said back in the Heidelberg Catechism, or the Heidelberg Disputation. This is the last thesis that he defended. But he's talking about the love of God. He distinguishes the love of God from the love of human beings. But this is what he says about God's love. God's love does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. And then he goes on to explain that. This is his proof for Thesis 28. Rather than seeking its own good, the love of God flows out and bestows good. For this reason, sinners are attractive because they are loved. They are not loved because they are attractive. This is the love of the cross, born of the cross, which turns in the direction where it does not find good, which it may enjoy but where it may confer good upon the evil and needy person. But just reflect on that line for a moment, right in the middle. Sinners are attractive because they are loved. They are not loved because they are attractive. Uh, this is the love of God that Luther discovered. A love that loved him precisely because he was wretched. And God's love confers then goodness and beauty and salvation and life and grace 
to wretched sinners. And just think about the significance of that in your own life. The fact that God doesn't love you because you're attractive. You're attractive because God loves you. Now, if you flip over the page, I won't make much comment on this. But I want us to hear Luther. It's one thing to hear me talk about Luther and tell you what Luther said, but it's another thing to actually hear Luther. So I've given you two longer quotes. These quotes come from a book called The Freedom of the Christian Man or The Freedom of the Christian. If you were to read anything of Martin Luther, I would say first read that sermon on, the, on how to meditate on the passion of Christ. But if you were to read something else of Martin Luther, I would say read this book, The Freedom of the Christian Man. And in that book, he reflects on this justifying love of God. And this is what he says. Accordingly, the believing soul can boast of and glory in whatever Christ has as though it were its own. And whatever the soul has, Christ claims as his own. Let us compare these and we shall see inestimable benefits. Christ is full of grace, life, and salvation. The soul is full of sins, death, and damnation. Now let faith come between them, and sins, death, and damnation will be Christ's, while grace, life, and salvation will be the soul's. For if Christ is a bridegroom, he must take upon himself the things which are his bride's, and bestow upon her the things that are his. If he gives her his body and very self, how shall he not give her all that is his? And if he takes the body of the bride, how shall he not take all that is hers? And when Luther's talking about the body here, he's being quite literal about it. He's thinking about the incarnation of the Son of God. The Son of God became flesh. The Son of God took our body. He took on what was ours. And for Luther, in his understanding of the Lord's Supper, which maybe we can talk about in the Q&A, But every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, the Lord offers his body to us. So this is how Luther understands the the love of Christ. He takes what is ours, including our weakness, our sin, our flesh, and he bestows on us what is his, his life, his salvation, his grace. He shares in the sins, death, and pains of hell, which are his brides. As a matter of fact, he makes them his own and acts as if they were his own and as if he himself had sinned. He suffered, died, and descended into hell that he might overcome them all. Now since it was such a one who did all this, and what he means by that as such a one, since it was the Son of God who did all this, and death and hell could not swallow him up, these were necessarily swallowed up by him in a mighty duel. For his righteousness is greater than the sins of all men, his life stronger than death, his salvation more invincible than hell. Thus the believing soul, by means of the pledge of its faith, is free in Christ, its bridegroom, free from all sins, secure against death and hell, and is endowed with the eternal righteousness, life, and salvation of Christ, its bridegroom. Who then can fully appreciate what this royal marriage means? Who can understand the riches of the glory of this grace? Here this rich and divine bridegroom, Christ, marries the poor, wicked harlot, redeems her from all her evil, and adorns her with all his goodness. Her sins cannot now destroy her, since they are laid upon Christ and swallowed up by him. And she has the righteousness, that righteousness in Christ, her husband, of which she may boast as of her own, and which she can confidently display alongside her sins in the face of death and hell, and say, 
If I have sinned, yet my Christ, in whom I believe, has not sinned. And all this is mine, and all mine is his. All his is mine, and all mine is his. As the bride in the Song of Solomon says, My beloved is mine, and I am his. This is how Luther understands justification by faith. The fact that we have been joined to Christ, and he, as our divine husband, has said, I am yours, and you are mine. And what is mine is yours. And what is yours, namely your sin and your death and your condemnation, is mine. Now, Christ takes that and destroys it. And that's why Luther talks about this mighty duel. The fact that Christ bears that, but then destroys it in the grave. And this is the significance of the resurrection. And so Luther, back at that, in that sermon on the meditation on the, of the cross or the passion of Christ, says, as you're meditating upon this open heart of Christ, this friendly heart, recognizing your own sin, now shake it off, cast it off on him. His heart receives it. His heart takes it. And then, as, as it, in a sense, enters his heart, it's destroyed. It's buried there and destroyed. And then, having been joined to him, we rise up with Christ in resurrection. And remember, that's what Paul says in Romans 4, I think it's verse 25. We have been justified by his resurrection. It's his resurrection that justifies us. The reason Paul says that, not that his death justifies us, but that his resurrection justifies us is because Paul too has this view of justification meaning a union with Christ, joined to the risen Christ, and now sharing in all the benefits of that marriage with Christ. Given all this, Luther then talks about good works. Is there any place for good works? Well, Luther says, of course there is. So it, what he wants to speak against is the idea that somehow good works lead to righteousness, even if infused by grace from God. Good works don't produce righteousness. However, righteousness produces good works. That's the way that we have to see it. And Luther, again, understands this within the marriage between the church or the believer and Christ. And so he says there's two kinds of righteousness. The first is the righteousness of Christ, which becomes ours in our union with Christ, because we belong to him. Now, because we have that righteousness, that righteousness cannot but produce what he calls actual righteousness in us, meaning righteous works, good works. Since, and, and so the, the righteousness of Christ in us becomes the source of good works, and Luther understands now justification as our transformation, our resurrection. We were dead, but now we're alive. We were bad trees, now we're good trees, and since we've been made good trees because what is Christ belongs to us, now we produce good fruit. And Luther emphasizes again and again the importance of good works. It's not an option. He's not down on good works. Good works are the necessary fruit of those who are joined to Christ. And just think of John's metaphor, or Jesus' metaphor in John 15. I am, I am the vine, you are the branches. And if you're a branch connected to the vine of Christ, you will bear fruit. So this is, again, how Luther understands justification. Having been joined to Christ, what, his is, what, what is his has become ours. Now that we are made righteous by our union with Christ, uh, we cannot help but bear the fruit of good works. Now, all that was part one. I think I've got 15 minutes. So part two, that, that's the justifying love of God according to Martin Luther. And the emphasis you see there is on the work of the Son. 
The Son of God became flesh. The Son of God sought us and bought us and made us his own. When we turn to the second part, the sanctifying love, the focus shifts to the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's the Spirit who keeps us in love, and we abide in this love of God by means of the Spirit. And when Luther is thinking about the sanctifying work of the Spirit, he doesn't think about it in an abstract sense or in any kind of a mystical sense. He thinks about it quite concretely in terms of the life of the church and the practical life of the church, the preaching of God's word, the faithful, faithful participation in the sacraments, the Lord's Supper, and one thing I want to highlight tonight is confession, the practice of confession. These are all the means by which the Spirit is at work strengthening our faith and keeping us in God's love, and in a sense, uh, helping us come into a deeper understanding and experience of this union with Christ that we have. Now, this may surprise you, but Luther says there are practical ways in which we abide in the love of God, and, and it, by virtue of abiding in the love of God, we're being sanctified. And those, those things are faithful participation in the life of a local church, and studying and memorizing and repeating to yourself daily the catechism. So first, just looking at the catechism. Luther wrote a shorter catechism and a longer catechism. In both, he expounds the Ten Commandments, the Creed, it's the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the meaning of the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And then he also tags on a little thing on confession. And he sees confession there as very much tied up to the Lord's Supper. But Luther says that the catechism is something that, that you need to learn and memorize. So he exhorted fathers to teach their children the catechism, have them memorize it. He wasn't so concerned that they understood what it meant. Just memorize it. You need to have the words. And if you have the words with you, then you will carry that message of the catechism. You'll carry those words with you the rest of your life. And you have the rest of your life to come to a deeper understanding of things. But he warns, and later Lutherans are very good at this, they warn, don't seek to understand the catechism. And don't seek to teach children to, to understand the catechism. Because then they'll take their 12-year-old understanding of the catechism with them the rest of their life. No, instead, teach them the words of the catechism. They'll take those words with them. And then over the course of their lifetime, come to a deeper understanding of it. So Luther said, having memorized the catechism, repeat daily the, the basic content of the catechism, which is the Ten Commandments, the Creed, the Lord's Prayer. So he said, he said that in his daily practice, he would get up in the morning, he would cross himself in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He would say a short prayer, and then he would recite the Ten Commandments, the Creed, the Lord's Supper. That's, that's what he did every morning when he woke up. And he says, go about your day reciting this to yourself, the Ten Commandments, the Creed, the Lord's Prayer. And he says this, I say their regular um, rumination. In such reading, conversation, and meditation, the Holy Spirit is present and bestows ever new and greater light and fervor, so that day by day we relish and appreciate the catechism more greatly. And for Luther, the, having the, the Ten Commandments always in the forefront of our minds is going to guide and direct the moral life, the ethical life. Having the creed always in the forefront of our mind is going to ensure that we are walking always in the light of the grace of God, the love of God. 
Luther understood the Apostles' Creed to be a summary of the gospel. That's the gospel, the Apostles' Creed. And that itself is significant, because Luther didn't see the gospel as a doctrine of justification by faith. He saw the gospel as the Apostles' Creed, which is an exposition of the, of the triune God. That's what he saw as the gospel. And that's what we medita- meditate upon day by day. The revelation of the triune God in Scripture. God the Father who created us, God the Son who redeemed us, and God the Spirit who is sanctifying us. And in his catechism on the Creed, he spends most of the time on that third article, on the Holy Spirit. And I've given it to you there. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. And for Luther, those lines that follow, I believe in the Holy Spirit, are an exposition of what it means to believe in the Holy Spirit, and an exposition of the way in which the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. So I'll read the first quote that I've given you, and if you flip over the page, you'll see I've given you lots more quotes. I want us to hear Luther, not just me. So he says this, The Holy Spirit affects our sanctification through the following, the communion of saints or the Christian church, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. In other words, he first leads us into his holy community, placing us upon the bosom of the church, where he preaches to us and brings us to Christ. Neither you nor I could ever know anything of Christ, or believe in him, or take him as our Lord, unless these were first offered to us and bestowed on our hearts through the preaching of the gospel by the Holy Spirit. Now Luther is, uh, what we have here is an echo of what we read in the Gospel of John and later in 1 John. The fact that to be saved means to be uh, drawn into the fellowship or the life of the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what John, what, what Jesus reveals to us in the Gospel of John is that the means by which we are drawn into that life is through the Holy Spirit, who gives us eyes to see, gives us ears to hear, gives us hearts, which are open, to the Son. So the Holy Spirit leads us to the Son, and then in the Son, and beholding the Son, and coming to know the Son, and believe in the Son, we are led to the Father. This is why Jesus says in John 14, no one comes to the Father except through me. This is why John tells us at the beginning, no one has seen God, and he means there the Father, but the Son who is in the bosom of the Father, has made him known to us. So John's Gospel, Luther, has an understanding of salvation as being drawn into this communion with God by the Spirit to the Son to the Father. And having reached the Father, then we find ourselves uh, participating at the center of the life of God, the triune God. Now notice what he says, though. That doesn't just happen when we're on our own, or we're out for a walk, and we're on a mountaintop. The Spirit does this by bringing us into the church, by placing us in the bosom of the church. For Luther, there's no understanding of salvation, there's no understanding of coming to uh, a knowledge of God or experiencing and coming to know what it means to be in fellowship with God without being in fellowship with the church. It doesn't happen outside the church. It can't happen outside the church. And this is what John says in 1 John. He says that, yes, our fellowship is with the Father and the Son, but we're writing this to you so that your fellowship may be with us. And John makes a very close, con- he, he makes the same connection between communion with God and communion with the body of Christ 
communion with the church. Now Luther is going to go on to expand upon this, but what he's saying in this is we don't grow and we're not, there's no sanctification outside the church. It's impossible. It can't happen. Now I'll read the next quote. I was brought to the church by the Holy Spirit and incorporated into it through the fact that I have heard and still hear God's word, which is, in the, which is the first step of entering it. Now notice, this is what we have here is Luther's definition of the church. Where is the church? It's the place where you hear God's word. So notice it's not just, that's where I first heard what God's word in the church. And he's very clear, you're not going to hear it somewhere else. You're only going to hear it in the church. And still hear it. The church is the place where we hear God's word. So if you're in a church and you're not hearing God's word, that's not a church. It may be a building with some people sitting in pews and someone at the front talking. It's not a church. This is how Luther defines the church. It's the place where you hear God's word. Though through it, he gathers us, using it to teach and preach the word. So the church is the means by which the spirit is teaching and preaching to the church. By it, he creates and increases sanctification, causing it daily to grow and become strong in the faith and in the fruits of the Spirit. Further, we believe that in this Christian church, we have the forgiveness of sins, which is granted through the holy sacraments and absolution. And what he means by absolution there is confession. And I'll say something about that in a moment. As well as through the all-comforting words of the entire gospel. Therefore, everything in the Christian church is so ordered that we may daily obtain full forgiveness of sins through the word and through signs appointed to comfort and revive our consciences as long as we live. Although we have sinned, the Holy Spirit sees to it that it does not harm us because we are in the Christian church where there is full forgiveness of sin. God forgives us and we forgive, bear with and aid one another. But outside the Christian church, that is where the gospel is not, there is no forgiveness and hence, no holiness. Now notice the theme that is emerging here. For Luther, the church is the place where forgiveness of sins happens. That's, that's his emphasis in this. And the Holy Spirit is active and present in the church, and we know that the Spirit is active and present in the church because that's where there is forgiveness of sins. And then the final quote there. For this purpose, the Spirit has appointed a community on earth through which he speaks and does all his work. For he has not yet gathered together all his Christian people, nor has he completed the granting of forgiveness. Therefore, we believe in him who daily brings us into the community through the word and imparts, increases, strengthens, and strengthens faith through the same word and the forgiveness of sins. Now, Luther is emphasizing here, as I've just said, that the church is the place where there is forgiveness of sins. He doesn't just simply mean there that the church is the place where we talk about the grace of God and we talk about being forgiven. It's not just the place where the gospel is preached. It's the place where, where we actually are forgiven for our sins. It's the place where forgiveness happens. It's, the community, it's a community of forgiving and being forgiven. Now, that happens through the preached word. It happens through the Lord's Supper. But Luther says it also happens through confession. And Luther adds to his shorter catechism and his longer catechism a brief word on confession. And he says that uh, a church really is not a church unless there's confession of sin there, because it's through the confession of sin that people come to know and experience the forgiveness of sin. 
Now, what Luther has in view here is two things. First of all, that the church, yes, as the creed says, is a communion of saints, but it's a communion of sinful saints. Luther is very honest about who we are. He's very honest about the church. The church is a place, is a communion of sinners. It's not just a communion of saints, it's a communion of sinners. And that's why he emphasizes the fact that it's in the church where there's the forgiveness of sins. If we all think that we're pious and don't need, and aren't sinful, then it's not going to be a place of forgiveness. So the very fact that Luther sees forgiveness of sins as essential to who we are as a community of God's people uh, implies that we, we are necessarily a community, a community of sinful people. So he says we can't try and candy coat our sinfulness. We can't try and ignore it. We need to be continually, daily in our life together, calling one another out and being honest about our sin. There, there needs to be a light shone on our hearts. And this happens by means of confession. Now, he doesn't mean by this that we're just going around announcing our sin everywhere, but he means that we should have pe- there should be people in the church who are confessors. They're people that we confess our sins to. And here's where Luther's doctrine of the priesthood of all believers comes in. This is how he understood the priesthood of all believers. That your brother or sister in Christ stands in Christ's place as your confessor. Meaning that as you confess your sins to your brother or sister, you are confessing your sins to Christ. So when we're thinking about the presence of Christ in our midst, it's not some abstract idea, like somehow Christ is invisibly present. No, when, as Luther understands the presence of Christ in our midst, it's the presence of one another. And we are, after all, the body of Christ. Again, that's not just a mystical thing. He says that uh, as the body of Christ, we are the embodiment of Christ. So Luther says, as we confess our sins to one another, it's as though we're confessing our sin to Christ. And this idea of confession was picked up later by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And it's interesting because some historians will look at the rise of, of Nazism in Germany and makes, make all kinds of connections to Luther and the Lutheran tradition. And there's some things you might point to there. However, Bonhoeffer, and if you've read anything of Bonhoeffer and appreciate anything that he's saying, he's thoroughly Lutheran in his theology. And there's actually a much closer tie and a much more faithful, uh, there's much more faithfulness to the Lutheran tradition in the confessing church and in people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer than there was in the national church at the time. And uh, Bonhoeffer is someone who shows us what it means to preach and teach the theology of Martin Luther in, in our own day. Uh, read the writings of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and you'll find out what it means to, to be a Lutheran today. And what I mean by that is, a, is someone who understands and gets and communicates Luther's theology. And Bonhoeffer in his little book, and I'm concluding with this, uh, Life Together, he's talking about the nature of Christian communion and fellowship. The final chapter is on confession. And he talks about the importance of confession, the fact that if we pretend to be a pious community, all we're doing is allowing sin to grow and fester in the darkness. But by means of confession, what we're doing is we are uh, putting our sin uh, out into the light. And sin thrives and has its power in darkness. But when we expose our sin by means of confession to a brother or sister in Christ, that sin comes into the light and the light destroys the sin. It loses its power. 
And Bonhoeffer says that the qualifications for a confessor, someone that can receive your sin, is someone who, is, who understands the cross of Christ and is submitted to the cross of Christ. And he has a wonderful line there. He says, um, someone may have three PhDs in psychology and be a well-known psychiatrist, and they don't know as much uh, of the human soul than someone that understands the cross of Christ and our own sinfulness before the cross. And that's the kind of people that we confess our sins to. And then towards the end of that chapter, he says this. I'll read it. Confession in the presence of a brother is the profoundest kind of humiliation. It hurts, it cuts a man down, it is a dreadful blow to pride. It was none other than Jesus Christ himself who suffered the scandalous public death of a sinner in our stead. He was not ashamed to be crucified for us as an evildoer. It is nothing else but our fellowship with Jesus Christ that leads us to the, I had to look up how to pronounce this word, but ignominious, dying, that comes in confession, in order that we may, in truth, share in his cross. The cross of Jesus Christ destroys all pride. We cannot find the cross of Jesus if we shrink from going to the place where it is to be found, namely the public death of a sinner. And we refuse to bear the cross when we are ashamed to take up ourselves, take upon ourselves the shameful death of the sinner in confession. In confession, we break through to the true fellowship of the cross of Jesus Christ. In confession, we affirm and accept our cross. In the deep mental and physical pain of humiliation before a brother, which means before God, we experience the cross of Jesus as our rescue and salvation. The old man dies, but it is God who has conquered him. Now we share in the resurrection of Christ and eternal life. And then he says a little later on, What happened to us in baptism is bestowed upon us anew in confession. We were delivered out of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. That is joyful news. Confession is the renewal of the joy of baptism. And really what confession is, is what what Luther talked about in that sermon on the meditation of Christ and how we come to see ourselves, who we truly are in the light of the cross. But then as we meditate on the cross further, we see there the friendly heart of Christ open to us. For Luther, this isn't just a nice idea. You know, it's a beautiful sermon and we might reflect upon it and think how wonderful that is. But this isn't just something for our intellectual exercise. Uh, for Luther, in the practice of confession, we actually experience what he's talking about there. Because before our brother or sister in Christ, we reveal ourselves, expose ourselves to be the wretched sinners that we truly are and confess our sin and have it come out into the light. And Bonhoeffer says, make sure you're confessing concrete sins. Don't just say, I was greedy this week. Don't just say, I lusted this week. It needs to be specific. It needs to be concrete. But once it's out in the light, then you're a brother or sister who stands in Christ's place can then, in a sense, be the mediator of the love and the open heart of Christ to you and pronounce God's forgiveness, pronounce his love, remind you that you belong to Christ, you are his, and bestow upon you the, the grace and the life and the salvation anew, afresh. And so for, for Luther, confession is the key to actually walking and experiencing what it means to be a people who 
uh, know what it means to be crucified with Christ. And that's where I conclude here. What Paul says in Galatians 2.20, this is what Luther understood and experienced. And I confess, I wish I understood and, I, I understood and experienced what Paul was talking about here. I may a little bit, but Luther understood this in a profound way, what Paul says here. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now what Luther is saying is we cannot claim to be crucified with Christ without openly subjecting ourselves to the humiliation of confession, of confessing our sins to a brother or sister. Because then we recognize that we, are the, we, we belong there with Christ, the one who was publicly shamed. In a sense, confession publicly shames us. And then we know what it means to be crucified with Christ. And only then do we know what it means then to uh, have Christ live in us and to understand the love of Christ for us. And I put there two Latin phrases. You'll find in books that people often talk about Luther's theology of the cross, and the Latin phrase there is theologia crucis. But that's actually not what Luther talked about. Luther talked about being a theologian of the cross. That's what theologus crucis means. And it's very different to talk about the cross, a theology of the cross. That's very different than being a theologian of the cross. And Luther didn't mean that there's people with PhDs who are theologians of the cross. He said every Christian believer needs to become a theologian of the cross. That doesn't just mean that you understand the gospel message and you can repeat what Luther says in his sermon on meditating on the cross. It means that you can say what Paul says in Galatians 2.20, that I have been crucified with Christ. And then that's my one takeaway from this, what I think we need to recover of Luther's theology. The second thing is the significance of the communal life of the church in all of this. It's easy to read some of Luther's writings on the love of God and justification and have a very individualistic understanding of this. But Luther says it's impossible to experience this or know this outside the community, uh, the community of believers, outside the church. It's something that we can only know and experience in the church. It's only something that we can know and experience as we are gathered together with God's people around the word of God, as we come to the Lord's table together, as we confess our sins one to another. And so the importance of our communal life together and a life in which we are together crucified with Christ. We are, after all, the body of Christ. The body of Christ was nailed to the cross. And that confession of sin will actually be the means by which we come to a deeper understanding and appreciation of the communion that we have together in Christ. And I conclude then just with this verse from 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, and John has just said God is light. It's a reference to the life in the, the, the communion of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. If we have fellowship with the triune God, we have fellowship with one another. That all sounds beautiful and amazing. But then he also says, and the blood of Jesus, of Jesus his Son, cleanses us from all sin which means we can have no understanding of our fellowship with the triune God and our fellowship with one another in the church unless we're willing, we're willing to recognize that we daily need this cleansing from sin, that sin is very much still present and that the blood of Christ is something that, in a sense, daily uh, atones for our sin 
And that's not going to happen just with our own individual times of devotions. It can only happen in our life together as a church. So I leave it at that. That was probably 50 minutes, but...